All right, it's been a while. A lot of shit has happened since my last podcast, which is from LA. I actually recorded a full podcast last night and then I realized the sound was totally fucked and I couldn't use it. So I just had to throw that in the uh, dustbin of history. I was talking to myself for 45 minutes. Nobody heard it. Nobody will ever hear it. That's it. I'm just like a, one of those crazy people who talks to themselves for no reason. Uh, one thing I actually forgot to mention in the last podcast, which wasn't that good. I'm actually, in, in a way, I was, I was bummed that I had to get rid of it, but I also was sort of relieved because I wasn't that psyched about it. But one thing I forgot to mention is I'm fasting this week. Sasha, the daughter, is at sleepaway camp for the first time. We dropped her off Sunday. Heather and I have the uh, place to ourselves for a week. And for God knows what reason, we decided that we might fast these few days. Well, the other reason is that when I was in Boulder, and I might have mentioned this on the last podcast, I can't remember, I met this doctor who was very knowledgeable about all the shit that I know about with health and more than me. And he was talking about detoxing the uh, mRNA spike protein and saying that, in his opinion, the way to do that was to fast for a minimum 72 to 96 hours, depends how long you need genetically. And he said, just go 96 to make sure because you don't know where you are on the genetic spectrum of how long you need to get into a full state of autophagy. And what autophagy is, is when you fast, basically the first thing that happens is your body burns through all the sugars in your blood. And once it burns through the blood sugar, the liver produces more sugar in the form of glycogen. It's like stored sugar. And then your body burns through that. And then once it burns through the sugar in the liver, it starts to burn your body fat. And then after a couple, you know, it's like day and a half, two days in, but then what starts to happen third, fourth day is the body starts to say, okay, we have no food. Let's be really efficient and starts to get rid of like senescent cells and disease cells and starts to just clear those out. It doesn't want to feed them anymore. So it starts doing kind of a, a cleaning process and gets rid of a lot of the garbage. And a lot of those cells probably end up being the cancer cells. So you clean those out. And our ancestors obviously did that because they didn't have access to food 24 seven. They sometimes went a few days without eating and the body would then clean out during that process. And we don't do that enough. So, you know, he was, I told him I fast, you know, every week, 40 hours, he said, that's fine, but you'll get a lot more mileage doing it four times a year, three, four days at a time. Uh, I'm still going to do the 40 hours because I still like that and believe in that, but I'm also going to take his suggestion and do some longer ones. I've done a week before and actually wasn't that bad. I did five days another time last winter but I think I'm going to do this three, four days, a few times a year, just to do sort of a cleaning, get the autophagy going, clean out the uh, senescent cells. You know, it's funny. I was reading this book that I bought a while ago. It's called uh, Fasting and Sunbathing. And it was, I think it was written in like the 1920s, 1930s. So it's old school. And it's just a lot of these case studies of people and fasting back then. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting what he says. And, he's, and, and one of the things the guy says, he says, fasting's not a cure for anything. He says, is there a need to cure a cough? No, your body will stop coughing when the things that it needs to expel are fully expelled. Cough isn't something that cures. It's something the body uses to get rid of unwanted toxins. And he says the fast is basically the same thing. You know, it's not curing anything. It's just letting the body not have the burden of digestion, which takes a lot of energy and a lot of energetic attention from the body. Without having that burden, it can just eat off of its stores of fat, which is why people store fat and everyone has enough to go a month or so minimum. And it's just, it eats those stores of fat and preserves energy and is able to do the cleaning process and to basically remove the causes of the disease. And so fasting isn't curing anything. It's just not adding more causes of why you're sick. 
and the body unburdened by the causes of illness can then proceed to do its healing. And I think that's true. I think that's true of most things. So it made me really think. And he said, he's like, don't fast for a predetermined amount of time. And at least in this book, not the doctor, he said three, four days. He said, fast until you feel great and feel hungry, like genuinely hungry, not hungry out of habit, hungry because you want a, a reward, but where you feel this, you know, robust strength come back and a really strong appetite to eat. And that could be like 17 days or 14 days. It means the body's finished its cycle of cleaning and you don't really know how long it needs until, you know, something shifts and you get rid of the, the toxins, the body heals. And then, you know, the body says, okay, it's time for some food. So I'm actually starting to think about maybe I'll do a two week one or a 17 day one at some point, but this one's probably just three, four days. While Sasha's at camp, it's a lot easier. Don't have to chase Sasha around and play with her and feed her and cook dinner together. So it's a, it's an opportunity. So I'm taking it and Heather's doing it too. We'll see. She's complaining a little bit more than me, but we'll see if she can uh, get through it. So far she's, uh, she's made it about 40 hours, but we got about, uh, she's going to do about 30 more. I'm going to do about 60 more and we'll see how it goes. So since I lasted the podcast, I was in LA and I wrote a couple of pieces. One of them was uh, the last couple of days in LA, we have tenants in our LA place and we really like our tenants. They're, they're really reliable. They're very nice. We also fix everything immediately and take care of them. So it's a, it's a good relationship. And we always come by every summer to kind of, you know, go through stuff. We still have a lot of stuff stored there and, you know, maybe take some stuff back to Lisbon. And we were hanging out with them, chit-chatting. They were like, hey, you know, we'd like to hang out for real. Uh, why don't you come over in a couple of days and we'll do a barbecue or something. So we come over one night and my guy, Brian, my tenant, he uh, immediately plies me with like a bunch of these drinks. They have these good, like, you know, those vodka and, and, and flavored sodas or whatever. They're not bad. I had about five or six of those. And then he passes me this J and I smoked that. And I don't smoke a lot of weed anymore. And my tolerance is very low. And all of a sudden I was like super, super way too high. And I'm trying to socialize with, with him and his wife and our other friend, their neighbor, our old neighbor across the street. And, but I'm just like too high to deal. And I hear Heather notice, obviously Heather notices that I'm out of my mind and she's starting to laugh at me. And the friend is starting to laugh at me from across the street, although she's probably just as high as me. And they're joking. And I just remember... Heather being, are you okay? Are you mad that we're talking about you? And I just, all I could say was, I'm choosing not to participate in this conversation. That's all I could say. Though. I said, I'm just choosing not to participate in this conversation. I'm not mad. I'm not, not mad. I'm just, I'm just not participating. That's it. And they were cracking up at that. But anyway, I had to get up after a bit. And I started walking through the house and, you know, they, they rented and furnished, but they've rearranged some stuff and brought in some of their own stuff, gotten rid of some of our stuff. But a lot of it's the same. Like Heather's art is still on the walls in the same places. And my books are all in the built-ins. And I'm kind of wandering through the house, super baked, looking at this stuff, looking at my house basically from, you know, we lived there from 2012 to 2016. And it's the same. And I'm sort of like, what if this is just 2015 still? And I've just imagined the last three years. You know, I'm just by myself in the den, looking at the things I looked at for years, all of our stuff. And it's just very trippy. And I started thinking about the nature of time and how, you know, time is just thoughts and memories. And that one memory goes after the next is just kind of a cause and effect thing that you can kind of put together what had to come before. But if you could attach yourself to a point in time that was identical sensory perception wise to a prior point, 
then everything past that, if everything else was pretty much the same, could just be imagination. And I was just contemplating the idea that maybe I just imagined the last six years and I would turn a corner and Sasha would still be four years old and I would just be in 2015 or she'd be three years old then, I guess, and living my life in the house. And then I realized, no, it's really good that it's 2022 and that we live in Europe and that these ha- this house has good memories for me, but I'm very glad that it's the past and that our tenants are happy there and that I'm just a guest. But it was kind of a trip. So I wrote about that, finished up in LA, Next couple of days after that, then uh, went to Mexico City for a few days and uh, posted some pictures on Twitter, but we did a taco crawl, checked out some different neighborhoods. Mexico City is a beautiful place, amazing place, 22 million people. It's like the size of LA footprint wise, but way more dense. And the traffic is tough because it's hard to get from, you know, it's like living in LA, you live in Venice, you're not going to go to Hollywood very often. You're not going to go to Silver Lake very often. You're not going to go to the Valley very often. And you just get sequestered in your little neighborhood because it's just such a pain with the traffic to uh, make the effort. Mexico City was kind of like that. The second day, a friend of ours who lives there, she has a driver and she took us on this taco crawl. We went all through the city to like the, I don't know, Heather did some research, like the best tacos, the best Cochinita Pibil. That was the best one. The best Al Pastor. That was really good too. The best Birria taco. And I'll put some pictures. Well, I, I put some on Twitter, but I'll put the pictures of the places and more Mexico City pictures in the uh, rimmanwood.com podcast notes. I don't know. I was going to put them on Twitter, but I'm not sure everybody wants to see that. But maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you have more interest. Anyway, the, the Mexico City was great. People are really nice. But I will say they were all wearing fucking masks inside still. And I started to call it Mascaco City because they were so crazy about this. And our friends were like, you should really wear the mask because they're not very confrontational. They're not going to like get mad at you, but it's going to bother them. And I thought about it. You know, I would respect local customs at a place, you know, something that's a few centuries old. It may not be scientific, but there's probably a good reason for it. You know, some sort of local custom of doing something. I wouldn't say like having your wife wear the burqa in the Middle East is a good local custom. I'd probably just not go there if that's required. But you know, a custom that's like something that you might think is a bit quaint, but maybe there's a good reason for it. I may observe that, but this mask is bullshit. This is some globalist top-down thing that everybody was doing. This isn't some cultural heritage thing. So I was just like, fuck it. I'm not wearing this mask. I'm not participating in insanity. And maybe I got some looks, but look, you know, I'm not going to be insane just because everyone else is. And uh, the only consequence of this really, nobody really said shit. The only consequence was I was doing it in the Ubers and one of the Uber drivers must have complained because when Heather ordered an Uber at one point, they made her put on a mask and take a photo of herself to prove that she had a mask because apparently one of the drivers uh, was complaining that not all of, and it was on her Uber that I, I probably heard her rating, but you know, fuck it. You know, I, I'm just not going to participate in insanity. I'm, I'm going to be uh, a good example for humanity to the extent that I can. So, all right, there's that. But otherwise, Mexico City was great. Food was great. It was, it was a nice time. And then we flew back to Lisbon, but we had a layover for six, seven hours in DC. And I posted those pictures too. I met a friend for a couple of beers and a burger, but of course Heather's like, Hey, well, let's go into DC. So, you know, we're like taking the train and a bus and walking in the pouring rain with our carry-ons. But we saw the Lincoln monument, Lincoln Memorial and Washington monument and got some photos. So that was all right. And then of course we, I had to go back to the airport and our flight. And this is this has been kind of a miracle. So I'll just backtrack. Before we left on July 1st, I was extremely anxious about the trip because, A, I hate the whole 
travel industrial complex anyway. But, and, and then the good thing was that the mask requirement and the mask, not mask, the mask also, but the testing requirements got kiboshed. Didn't have to stick that shit up my nose. I was very, I was not good with that, but I, I wrote about how I, I really had no choice. I had to go back for the States for family reasons, but I really, really did not want to uh, stick something up my nose. Again, it's just insanity and it's, it's invasive and for no good reason. Uh, there's no medical reason to do it. They got rid of that. And then I was worried though, because I'm anxious about travel, about all the delays. So in, in, I don't know if you remember, but in late June, you know, there was like 28% of flights were canceled, 30% were delayed, 60% were delayed, 30% more were delayed. And I was like, fuck, we're gonna get fucked, especially flying out of DC on the way in in the afternoon. There's always thunderstorms on the East Coast. So that flight was delayed two hours. No big deal. Had a burger and beer at the bar. Got to Colorado, my flight Colorado to Vegas, no problem. Vegas to LA, no problem. LA to Mexico City, no problem. At this Mexico City flight, we get back from DC, thunderstorms, delayed. And it's the last flight of the day. And I'm like, fuck, we're going to be screwed. And it's like expensive to get in and out of Dulles. It's an hour outside the city. Got to figure out where to stay. And at the last minute, they fly in a plane from Cleveland. So it, it turned out that the Newark plane that was supposed to be our plane got canceled. But some, by some miracle, they fly in a different plane from Cleveland, get us on an hour late, get into Lisbon basically on time. So all that shit, not a single significant delay or cancellation. And then we went to France after that, back and forth, no problem. So nine for nine on the flights. So I was just very lucky. I've had a very lucky summer. Not just that, but like, you know, the fact that the Rotowire trip was right when I was going from Colorado to LA that we had planned already. Perfect. That trip went great. My proxy, Tony, who I have the embarrassing video uh, with me on the Real Man Sports Substack, that video that I posted. She was there to take my entries to Circus Survivor and the uh, Circus Super Contest. That was amazing. That was great luck that she was there. Right when I'm there, I get to do those. It's what I'm going to write about all fall. Hopefully, um, I last long enough in the Survivor Contest to keep writing about it. Week one is kind of a bitch. And I posted something about that on Real Man Sports also. Uh, but everything was just so lucky. Everything went so smoothly. And even though Boulder was kind of a pain, we, we, the first night in Boulder, we stayed at a uh, sister's house. The next three nights at a friend's house. The next three nights at a hotel. The next six nights at the country house, three of which I slept on the couch because we had so many family members there. And then two more nights in Boulder and then two nights in Vegas. And finally, I'm in LA. So not just the amount of places, but I'm sleeping in all these different places, even in Boulder. And it was a bit hectic. And I wrote about that too. And going to publish it. I have my editor, Heather, checking it out. She, she was like, it's pretty good, this piece about travel, but it's a little spoiled. You sound like a rich asshole, but be that as it may, I, I think we should talk about the things we enjoy and do. And I, I'm a little bit, I, I don't really give a shit if some people are like, well, that's a privileged life or that's, yeah, it's a fucking good life. I hope to have a good life. I hope people who think about their own lives aspire to have a good life, you know, doing the things they want to do and don't have the sense of, oh, well, there's they're starving people in the third world. So I better not enjoy myself. You know, God forbid uh, that I do something enjoyable. So I kind of put the kibosh on that criticism, but maybe the piece is a little cheesy anyway. But I'm just talking about how basically I'm a type of dude who likes stability. I like my routine. We're working on these, get it set up so that I have our apartment in Lisbon in a place to, you know, chill in the country. And I always thought that was kind of the ideal, the dream when I was in New York. My rich friends had all that shit. And I was... Envious. I was like, that's amazing. You know, you have all your stuff just so where it is, all the things you like in the fridge and the cupboards and your clothes hanging up there. You take a small bag, you toggle between. What a great life. And it's also like the place you go and you put roots down 
And I'm like that. Heather just would probably never have a country house. You just want to travel around the globe and stay in hotels. And I like a little bit of that, but it's a bit stressful. You got to check out. You got to catch a plane. The plane doesn't wait for you. You're like so rich, you have a private jet, but that's a bit out of reach. I'm not going to say never. I'm never going to say never. I would love to fucking just drive to the jet, not go through the fucking ridiculous, absurd, insulting, dehumanizing airport security. Just drive to the jet, get on and land and then drive to the hotel or to your house in the uh, wherever you're going. That would be amazing. But Heather would rather just get in the fucking airport system and go places. I would rather have like a stable place to go every weekend. You know, it used to be that wasn't even that extravagant. You know, it used to be the middle class could have a little cottage somewhere or a little cabin in the woods and a, a place where they worked uh, in the 50s and 60s were on a firmer money standard. And now that's just like, it's rare. You know, both spouses are working. It used to be one one spouse would work. You'd have an apartment in a, or maybe a little house in the suburbs in a little country place or a cabin. And now both spouses work and you're lucky to be able to uh, make ends meet in your city apartment. So things have gotten worse, obviously, in the, uh, inequality, the concentration of wealth has gotten worse in the system. And we'll get to that. But anyway, that's what I aspire to. But I kind of realized when I got back to Lisbon after the trip, like how much I appreciate this boring life in Lisbon. And Heather and Sasha like passed out when we got there, jet lagged. And I went to the grocery store and bought the shit and made the agua con gas, the uh, sparkling water that we are hooked on and, you know, just stocked everything up and reconnected all the computer cables and walked the dog who came and I was just happy to be in my dull two bedroom apartment with my dog doing routine shit. But I realized that I was happy in part because I'd just done this trip and it was the contrast. It was, you know, you need roots and stability, but you need adventure. The adventure helps you appreciate the stability. The stability creates the need for adventure and it's a balance. You know, you need adventure. And now I'm like, okay, I'm set. I'm back. I'm in my element. Hopefully these houses get done. It'll probably be like two years. And by that time, Sasha won't even want to go there. That's my worry about it. And I'm going to be the only one who wants to go, but cross that bridge when we get there, I'm like, okay, I'm set. I can chill for a bit, but you never are set, right? You, you get set and then you get sort of a need for adventure and then you have the adventure and then you have a need for stability. And it's kind of a back and forth that if you do it in the right combination, it's, it can be helpful, but still, no matter what, you're never really set. You know, you're always going to have to pay attention. You're always going to be with your own mind. So it was just a piece on that. It might be a bit trite. We'll see. I may publish it. The other thing that I was writing about, and this one's a bit deeper, is there's a, there's a guy named Durjiji. He's a uh, Bitcoiner and he writes some deep shit. And one of the things he wrote is that Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment, which is basically, and I'm probably going to botch this, but basically when the miners use electricity to mine Bitcoin, when they go and, and, and all that is, is basically brute forcing a guess of a number. So you have a number between one and an octillion. It's a random number. It could be 28. It could be septillion, you know, three septillion, 250, sextillion, something quintillion, you know, quadrillion, et cetera, down to 231. That could be the number. And the computer just guesses every number until it luckily hits it. And if you throw a bunch of power at it, it can make a lot of guesses. And when you guess the number, you get rewarded some Bitcoin. And then your, your guess secures the next block. But when the algorithm in the Satoshi made it so that there's a difficulty adjustment. So basically if, if like all these miners come on or some powerhouse miners, say Saudi Arabia decided to put their uh, energy behind a massive electrical plant, massive electrical computer and massive software just to do this. And they're like, we're going to mine all the Bitcoin. 
And then the hash rate, basically the power uh, expenditure just went way, way up for the next block. Um, the difficulty would get harder. So instead of between one and an octillion, it would be one in, the only number I know is nonillion. I don't know, duodecillion. I don't know some of these numbers, but one number I know is a Google. So let's say it was one in a Google. So now, no matter how much power you put in, now you've got a, you know, Google's probably too high, but you've got so many numbers, you got to brute force it at, and it would still take 10 minutes or so for the next block to be mined because no matter how much power you put in, the difficulty just adjusts when the hash rate goes up. And then when people say, wow, this one in a Google is too much power to guess this random number, let's reduce, you know, I'm, I'm, all the miners start quitting and there's only a few, well, then the difficulty adjusts downward and it's easier to guess. It'll be one in a trillion and then it doesn't take that much hash rate to get it. So the, the uh, difficulty adjusts. And what that does is it means no matter how much power or how little power is going into the mining, a new block on average forms every 10 minutes. And so Bitcoin keeps time that way. It basically, the clock does not get disrupted. No matter how much power someone puts in or how much gets withdrawn, the hash rate stays, I mean, the, uh, the time stays about the same. And so Bitcoin is this clock and the clock measures truth. It measures each block and you can't fuck it up by basically got this, it's a difficulty adjustment that keeps it on time. And, you know, Dragigi wrote this article called Bitcoin is Time and how it's this kind of clock that measures truth. And, you know, I've gotten into the whole Tower of Babel thing where the language of value gets distorted when you can print money by fiat and when you uh, have to earn money and then and then you earn it also just by proof of work, by energy expenditure in the physical world, you have a much more sound money. And so, okay, so this is the backdrop. There's this difficulty adjustment that's built into Bitcoin that prevents somebody from putting all this energy into it. And it just made me think, I was like, what else has a difficulty adjustment like that? Well, physics does. The universe does. There's another. Di there's a difficulty adjustment in physics and that is the speed of light. The speed of light is the maximum speed to our knowledge that anything can travel. And we know this because if you try to accelerate anything with a mass to the speed of light, it starts to take on infinite mass and then cannot get there because if something has infinite mass, it would take infinite energy to accelerate it and it slows down. So it never quite gets to the speed of light. And they have the CERN you know, that shit that's probably going to blow up the world when they fuck it up, uh, those colliders in, in Switzerland or wherever. And they accelerate these very, very, very light particles, these electrons, close to the speed of light. But they can't get it to the speed of light because it would take on infinite mass and it will then slow down. Because again, to accelerate an infinite mass, you need infinite energy and that's not possible. So the universe has a difficulty adjustment. As you get toward the speed of light, it starts to slow down. It's a And why does it do that? I mean, what... What, what does that mean? Well, if you travel the speed of light, time stops. You don't age. If I go at the speed of light to a star and back, you'll be old and I'll be the same age. So the, the speed of light is where time breaks down. And the universe keeps its clock by, you could say, by not allowing anything in it to get to the speed of light. Only photons, which are massless, and you know the, the photons aren't, you know they don't have mass. They sort of exist outside of time. Photons are light particles, so to speak. So Basically, the universe keeps its clock by having a difficulty adjustment. As you get toward the speed of light, it slows you down. Bitcoin, as you put in more energy, the difficulty adjustment makes it harder and harder to guess the number, and, it's, and it keeps the clock at every 10 minutes per block on average, and the universe keeps its clock, doesn't start to have time travel where effects precede causes, 
because of this speed of light limitation. If you could go faster than the speed of light, you could probably travel in time and you could have effects that go before causes. And then you have the paradox of, you know, you go back and kill your parents. And how did you kill your parents if you were never born? And the logic of the universe stops making sense. So I just think it's fascinating that this new money based on electricity, based on time and space works in quite the same way that the universe works. And if you want the absolute record of who has what, of what energy is where, of whose surplus monetary energy is where, that it keeps time and keeps a ledger in the same way that the universe keeps time. You can't travel in time except forward at speed of one second per second. So I thought that was just incredibly deep and I haven't really thought through all the implications of it, but I figured I would pass it on. So another thought I had, and maybe this should have gone before the Bitcoin one too, is that I read this book a while back. I didn't really read it. I skimmed it uh, by this guy, Julian Jaynes, called The uh, Origin of Consciousness and the Bicameral Mind. And his thesis is that consciousness is not inherent. The consciousness that we have now, where you identify, I'm Chris Liss and I live in Portugal and I have a, a daughter and blah, blah. The, the sort of image you have of yourself that's not inherent to human consciousness. And in fact, it had to be developed, sort of a the use of metaphorical language to have a, a you know, you have a metaphor, the, the self you have in your head, the ego, the, the image of yourself, that's not you, obviously. It's a, it's a picture of you. It's a metaphor of you, but it's totally not you. I mean, it's, it's just a very uh, edited version that you use for convenience. We, we tend to identify way too much with it, but it's, it's clearly just a metaphor for yourself. It's not the actual self. And he said that that consciousness that, you know, that's recent, that we've had, been able to have this metaphorical self that we identify with. And it, it's obviously useful to navigate the world. I have my medical, metaphorical self, you have yours. I have an image of you that I imagine is somewhat like me, although it's not as detailed as mine of myself and vice versa. Maybe if you really see the metaphorical self as a metaphor, as a tool, and you don't identify with it at all, but you can use it, then you're probably an enlightened person. You're like an awakened person. You're not attached to it. But if you don't have that tool at all, what would that be like? And he basically said that, you know, as recently as 10,000 years ago, people didn't have that tool, that metaphorical self. And instead they were guided by sort of auditory hallucinations, tribal auditory hallucinations from a leader or something, but it wasn't the way we think of it. Like, okay, what do I want to do today? What am I going to do? This I, this sense of centralized self that we sort of proceed from. And he said that if somebody from that era were, you know, transported to today, we probably diagnose them as schizophrenic. The schizophrenics, they don't have that tool, that metaphorical self, and they're sort of guided by auditory hallucinations more than a, you know, a sense of self. I started thinking about that in, in the context of, you know, sort of society-wide. And you know how everyone says, oh, well, the nine o'clock news, Edward Murrow would, you know, tell us, you know, what was going on. And Walter Cronkite or whoever, you know, would be like, oh, here's what's going on. And it might've been bullshit, might've been CIA fed bullshit, but it was the story. You might think, okay, we should stop going to Vietnam or we, you know, the war in Vietnam is a good thing. It's a bad thing. You, you could differ as to your reaction or what you should do about it. But the narrative is set by the news or prior to that, the church or the king or whatever was not in dispute. The basic facts, even if they were bullshit, were the accepted facts and we could differ on what to make of them, how to process them. So we had this sort of story, you know, just like our ego is a bullshit story about ourselves, the narrative about society and who we are. Maybe it's a bullshit story, but it was our story and we could sort of have this collective narrative. But now not only are institutions so discredited and reviled that they can't keep the narrative going and the news is not trustworthy. We know that through 
social media and just through, you know, the ability to access information directly, you know, we don't have this tool anymore that we can share. And there's this idea of this thing called the Dunbar number, where it's basically the amount of people you could know personally, like 150 or 200. And, and I think it, it, we've kind of inherited it from our tribal roots where you'd know like the 150 people in your tribe and you could trust them because you knew them. And there's sort of your extended clan and family and friends. But beyond that, or some people say it's 300 or 500, but it doesn't matter. When you get to 10,000 or 10 million, uh, you can't personally know everybody. Your mind, your brain can't really do that. And you have to act at scale. Society needs a narrative. You know, we need, I'm an American and Americans stand for this and, you know, human rights and, you know, these things that, that we can sort of have these collective stories that are much bigger. We need to act uh, at scale for society to work at scale. It can't just be, we're way, way bigger than the Dunbar number. And how can we all get along without knowing everybody? Well, it's narrative stories. But when the story breaks down, I was thinking this is kind of akin to the ego identity breaking down and you become a schizophrenic. And societies like the schizophrenic, we do not have even a shared fact. I'm not saying the facts are bullshit. They are bullshit, but we don't even share the same bullshit anymore. We can't even agree on the basic facts of what's true. Oh, January 6th, it was the 9-11. You know, I mean, people think that, you know, I don't think that it was a bunch of idiots trespassing. Some people think this is the threat to the democracy, you know? but we can't even agree on the basic facts of what happened. So we're in this sort of schizophrenic society where we have to, we're at scale way beyond the Dunbar number, but we don't have a narrative we share anymore. And I think that that, and so I started thinking about that. And I was like, why is that? You know, how do we heal from this? How do we get back to having a narrative, preferably a true one? And I think it's again, because they broke the money, we got off the gold standard and now there's no communication of value because if I'm working and trying to offer value and communicating value and you're communicating what you want and we're, I'm trying to earn a living by creating value, but then someone next to me is just going to the printing press and getting infinite money and sucking up to the, you know, just sort of getting close to the money printer. And this new bigger source of money is coming in, distorting the language of what's actually valued and the government can subsidize this and put their thumb on the scale of this and pay for COVID funerals and, you know, reimburse hospitals if they market a COVID death, then you get distortions in what's true. And all of the facts, what actually happened during COVID gets distorted because you have this money printer that can basically throw the money wherever it wants. It doesn't need to actually be accountable or have a market demand for it because it's, you know, we can go to a war in Iraq. Like, was that a good expenditure of $6 trillion? No, it was a fucking horrible expenditure. Not to mention all the people they killed, but you wouldn't spend that if you had a hard money that you had to earn that money, that you needed to go make that money through work. You wouldn't waste it on the war in Iraq, but because you could print it, fuck it. There's some uh, arms manufacturers that scratch our back. We'll scratch theirs. We'll, we'll launch this war. We'll give 40 billion to Ukraine. They wouldn't be doing shit like that if you needed to work for that money. So the money printers distorted the behavior. And I think it's gotten so far downstream 50 years out that it's distorting even what's basically true, that they can make up what's true because they have the money. They could put the money into funding AstroTurf bullshit and there's no just pure signal anymore. The language of value has been distorted. It's the Tower of Babel. And of course, we haven't uh, improved over space travel in 1969. And we haven't improved. We used to have a supersonic jet Concorde and we don't do supersonic passenger jets anymore. So we haven't developed. We've stagnated. And I'm sort of with the Bitcoiners of fix the money, fix the world. And so very schizophrenic time. But I do think there's hope because the, according to Jane's who, who wrote the book, 
people at one point were of the schizophrenic way of being and and spontaneously this metaphorical consciousness emerged. I'm not saying the ego consciousness is the highest we can go. It's certainly not, but that sort of emerged from nothing. And I think that uh, we can emerge back into a state of, of hard money and, and truth and value. And, and so I, I'm actually hopeful, but it, we're, we're doing this. We're trying to make this happen with the backdrop of a schizophrenic society. A couple other things throw in there. I did a, a live stream of my latest draft, NFFC draft. And I kind of fucked it up because I, <laughs> I had my cross-off list on the screen instead of the, the draft board, which is the most interesting part, but it was only a couple rounds, only the most important couple rounds. But I got back to it. And I do think though, that instead of going into a lot of what I think about different players, that live stream, if you're interested in my fantasy football views, I basically talk about every player. So I'll link to that again in the realmanwood.com notes, that live stream. It's on the realmansports.substack.com too. So there's that. What else? Oh, Ted Bell had a funny tweet. He, he searched my handle and the word selfish. And there's a bunch of people being like, you're selfish. You're not wearing a mask. You're selfish. Or just take the goddamn shot. You're selfish. And it's just so how ridiculous it sounds. You could play a game, like search my handle and a word like that, selfish or anti-vaxxer or whatever the fuck you know, insult was being thrown my way six months ago. And you will just see some just embarrassingly bad takes. I mean, it's funny now, but it's not really funny because even though I feel very relieved and I'm like, thank God, hopefully this nightmare is over where, you know, they were going to actually fucking make you inject some fucking pharmaceutical product that wasn't even tested properly. And it wasn't even the product that was green lighted. Check out Ted Bell's Twitter for that. How fucked up that was and in violation of right, human rights and Nuremberg code and everything else. Um, they're going to make you do that. And the fact that that is kind of off the table now temporarily is great. That's just so fucked up. And if you advocated for that, I think you should just apologize. I mean, straight up, just show contrition. Otherwise you can't be trusted. I mean, it just shows when the next crisis comes, you're going to be an authoritarian that sells out your friends, family, and colleagues. So if you were advocating for that or bullying people on that, I mean, you should be accountable. And, and the best way to do it is self-accountability. Just go in and say, you know, I was caught up in this stupid. I'm ashamed of it. I'm sorry. I can't believe I did that. I learned something about myself. I mean, that to me would go a long way. And I would trust a person like that. We all make mistakes. I mean, even first nine months, I wasn't fucking advocating for people to be forcibly injected and it's sick, but I was like, you know, very strict. Like wash your hands. I was yelling at Sasha, wash your hands when you come back. So, you know, I fell for it too for a while. So, you know, I'm not one to, uh, I'm not perfect by any means, but if you fell for it worse to the point where you were wishing coercion and lost jobs and trying to rat out people to other people. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta be contrite about that. If you're not, if you just really don't give a shit because you just felt that was team good and you're still on team good. Okay. That's your choice, but just let you know, like people like me and a lot of reasonable people, even people who took the shot and be like, that guy's a fucking liability because they know who ratted who out and they saw, and they're like, this guy, I don't want to know this guy. I don't want him to know anything about me. I don't want to be close to this person. I don't want to have any dirt on me, any information about me because that guy would turn me in. It's, it's a relief, but I think we have to make sure these people are accountable. You know, we have to make sure that we don't just forget. If they won't account for it themselves, I mean, in Japan, when the CEO would like fail at his business, he'd kill himself. That's accountability, not this bullshit. Oh, I take full responsibility. I mean, I take no responsibility. Are these fucking assholes joking about it? Like, oh, it's all a big joke. Ha ha. He didn't get vaccinated, that crazy anti-vaxxer. 
It's not a joke. You wanted that guy to be out of a job. You wanted to harm that guy economically. You wanted to ruin him financially and harm him and his family. That's what you wanted to do. It's not a fucking joke. There were leaders of countries like Trudeau and Macron saying things like, we want to make the unvaccinated lives miserable. What does that mean? There, there was a mandate. There, people got fired. Now they're getting sued, by the way. They're suing some of the, uh, I think, Illinois. There's a lawsuit. They got $10 million for people who got fired for not taking it. But how about the people that got vaccine injured who didn't want to take it, who were forced to take it or lose their job? Uh, there's going to be a reckoning. And I'm not going to let this go. I, I'll forgive anybody who comes clean, even if they were the worst of the worst. If they, if they acknowledge it, I just feel like, you know what? People are human. They make mistakes. And if they own it, Sincerely, not when it's too late, not when, you know, it's just to save your ass. But when Team Good is still trying to push this bullshit, you got about five minutes left in history to do this. Otherwise, you're fucked. And people know, you know, you think you got away with it. Aha, people don't say anything to me. Oh, they know. Even the people who dutifully took the shot, even the people who don't regret it, they know who was bullying whom. They know what the discourse was. And they may have been fine with the, the shot and they might not have cared about that per se, but there'll be something else. There'll be some other thing they may not be down with and they know who will enforce it. If the authorities say, if their tribe insists, they know who it is. You've outed yourselves. You can search my handle in a bunch of those words. You can see a lot of Twitter handles. I'm not going to go do it. I, I've thought about it many times, but I remember the scene in Heat where Robert De Niro, I've talked about this. He's won. He's pulled off his caper. He's got the money. He's got his girlfriend. They're heading to the, the jet to get out of the country. They've won. And he gets this phone call and they're like, you know, that scumbag rat fucker who ratted you out. Yeah. He's in this hotel. He's guarded, but just figured you want to know. He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. He's driving. And then his brain is working. He's thinking about it. And all of a sudden he peels the car around, goes, kills that fuck, but gets caught and killed in the process. Don't go back. Don't look back. I was also reading this article recently. This guy was quoting one of the Stoics. And he said that the best revenge you can get on people is to not be like them. Not, if, if you feel someone did something wrong to you, don't be like them. Don't be like dunking on them, going to find them. Just be, you know, be like, yeah, you know, that, that speaks for itself. So I'm kind of bullshitting because I'm kind of half, I, I'm not calling them out by name, but, but you know, I remember and I have receipts. I'm, I haven't used them. So again, I'm, I'm on the middle of this. You know, I think the Stoics are probably right. And I think Robert De Niro and Heat, that was just such a great scene because it just showed his face. You could just see he's a good actor and it just showed his face working like just wanted to kill that fuck. He had won. It was over. There was no need. Let that guy fuck him over and not get your revenge. Virtue is its own reward and vice is its own punishment. Being a scumbag loser is its own punishment. You never get away with anything. If you believe in karma, you don't get away with anything. But I do think there should be accountability and a reckoning Certainly, forget about the private people. I mean, they should apologize, as I said, but the public officials that actually had power to disrupt people's lives, I mean, I think that should be a serious reckoning. And I think there should be prosecutions for the Trudeaus and the Jacinda Ardens and the, you know, Australia, what is Scott Morrison and those scumbags and the Biden administration and those people. I think there should be prosecutions because they violated people's rights. And we'll see how far it goes. It's hilarious that the Pfizer CEO got COVID. He's quadruple vaxxed and he's going to take Paxlovid and get another bounce back reinfection. I respect a drug dealer that takes the own, their own drugs more than one that would pawn it off on somebody else who never touch it himself. So if it's even true, I mean, who the fuck knows? It reminds me, I, when I was a teenager, I was friends with this girl who uh, her dad was a senior executive at Philip Morris, you know, the 
Marlboro Tobacco Company. And he smoked though. He smoked. He wasn't, you know, like, oh, never for my family. And we would go over to their house. They had a nice house in the Hamptons. And we'd go out there and, you know, we'd be smoking as teenagers. But a lot of times we smoked camels and he would be pissed. Not that we were smoking, but they were smoking camels because camels were, I think, RJ Reynolds, not Philip Morris. So we were smoking the rival brand. He didn't give a shit that we were smoking. So real man back in the day. But yeah, I mean, evil as it may be, it's worse. It's more evil like those tech execs that putting the addictive social media stuff in there, but yet they don't let their kids touch that stuff. In a way, that's more evil because it's, you don't even believe in your product. You know it's bad. He at least was a smoker. So give him credit for that. All right. I think that's going to do it. If you guys are inclined and enjoy this podcast, I appreciate comments and uh, ratings on, uh, on iTunes. Also spread the word. If you like it, send it to other people. Growing it is always good. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Till next time.